So uh, for folks who don't know, I'm K.L. Jaffe. I'm a professor of law here at dear old UVA and also director of the uh, Environmental Law Clinic, also co-director for this year of PLACE, that's the program in law um, communities and the environment. This event is being co-sponsored not just by PLACE, but also by uh, the law and business um, um, I'm sorry, uh, Law and Business Program here at UVA. We've got Professor Jay Butler is here who leads the Law and Business Program. So if you've got questions about Law and Business, talk to Professor Butler. got questions about place, you can talk to me. If you've got questions about all of it, you can talk to our guest, uh, Eric Bodenhofer. I'll introduce Eric uh, to, before we get going. So Eric and I were classmates here at dear old UVA, and uh, we got here in the fall of 1998. Section J classmates, um, and been good friends ever since. Um, Eric, prior to, uh, was a, you were a Boston native. Um, or well, I, I, you were a Coast Guard I kid. I was a Coast Guard kid, so I'm kind of a all over native, but I came down here from Boston. So. Right. And speaking of being a Coast Guard kid, I remember one story was that the first fish you caught was what, like a haddock? Halibut, yeah. Halibut. It, it, yeah. it weighed more than I did. It was. Yeah. It kind of ruined me for fishing for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, so Eric comes down here from Boston, Boston College graduate, uh, and then after law school, starts out at a litigation boutique back up in Boston, Nutter, McClellan, and Fish, makes his way over to doing transactional work at, um, at Wilmer Hale. Has I got that, the path right? And then not too long before that, to in-house at Reebok, which for a time was owned by um, Adidas, or as I've learned, is the German pronunciation Adidas, since it's a German company. Um, now uh, Reebok has been sold by Adidas and is now owned by a uh, privately held group, which we can talk more about in a little bit. Um, but I'll just start off by asking Eric, sort of one, just sort of tell us your path from, you know, Section J friend to general counsel at Reebok International. Um, and also, you, uh, you know, so I guess as, as David Byrne of the Talking Heads would say, well, how did I get here? So we'll start there. Fair enough. Well, thank you all for having me. This is really, I'm really happy to be back here. Um, I was talking to Kale's seminar just a little while ago and, and explaining how um, I, I had a plan when I got here, and it did not go. I did not go to it at all. It, it, I I had an idea when I got to law school. Generally, what I didn't want to do, I didn't want to be a transactional attorney at a major law firm. And three years later, I was a transactional attorney at a major law firm. And it was through it was through no conscious choice. It was just a series of small decisions um, that sort of led me there. And and. And I think just being open to the, the possibilities, I've, I've had a really enjoyable career as, as a result. As Kel mentioned, I started at a, a regional, it was the fifth largest firm at, in Boston when I joined it. Um, it was at a time when the legal market was sort of in a real flux. It was the first big tech bubble. Um, it was the beginning of the salary wars between all the firms. Um, there were a lot of firm um, mergers and then very quickly a lot of firm failures and in my first three years of practice in a desperate attempt to make sure I hit my hours I did anything and everything available to me um, and then realizing that that meant that I now had a reputation at my firm as uh, being good at 
everything and great at nothing. I realized I probably needed to reset, and I left and joined Wilmer Hale shortly after after um, Wilmer Cutler Pickering merged with Hale and Door. I joined their venture capital group. Uh, so all of my clients were early stage startup companies. Um, so kind of got a glimpse at 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 the very beginning of of how a corporation might might operate, and then after a while realized that firm life just really wasn't for me. I wanted more of a work-life balance. I wanted to feel like I was part of a, really part of something bigger than just, you know, reacting to client requests and, and feeling like I was, yeah, I'm not a firm, but everybody's sort of an individual contributor there. I started looking for in-house jobs and um, had actually given myself a two-year window where I was going to try and build up my my areas of practice to be more attractive as a, to an in-house role and just started looking at the want ads and it just so happened one of the first ones I looked at was for a role at Reebok which happened to be 10 minutes from my house and the job looked awesome so I applied for it and again my plan went to heck in a way but it also was great I ended up in-house at, at Reebok where I started off as their general counsel in-house general counsel for a sub-brand um, Rockport, the brown shoe company, and then I did work for Reebok CCM Hockey and for the sports license division, which did all of the league um, licensing work, so the NFL, the NHL, the NBA, and then I progressed more into general commercial work and um, marketing and endorsement agreements with the athletes who signed with, with Reebok, and I was there for uh, 15 years under the ownership of Adidas or Adidas, and then we were sold a year and a half ago to a private company, Authentic Brands Group, and as part of that transition out from Adidas, I was elevated into the general counsel role, so I've, I've been there for just a little over a year at this point. So, um, so I'm just, if you could tell us a little bit about, one, what does a general counsel do at a, at a retail-oriented company like um, Adidas, or, or rather Reebok, and in particular, what is the general counsel's role when it comes to things like environmental, social, and governance issues? So the Reebok, the, the legal department is, is relatively small given the size of, of the business. So I touch levels of the business that a general counsel at a bigger, in a bigger department probably wouldn't. Um, you know, at, when we were under Adidas, the, the global general counsel really only ever spoke with the CEO the C-level executives in the right, kind of very high-level stuff. Um, my team is small enough that I I sit with the senior leadership team in, in all their meetings and offer advice, both legal and, and business, um, as and when necessary about all, of course, all manners of um, all aspects of what we do as a business. And then day to day, I'm um, working specifically with our our sourcing team in terms of. Um, I negotiate the agreements with our, our vendors who manufacture the product. I interact with our customers. Um, I negotiate, we just recently signed Justin Fields as an endorsed athlete that I was responsible for that. And then I manage a relatively small team that sort of touches, I have a uh, patent and trademark attorney who handles all of our intellectual property, um, another commercial attorney who sort of 
backstops me and then I'm marketing a um, paralegal who reviews all of our, our advertising and, and claims and, and the like. Um, but the day-to-day, -day, it varies from working with the SLT, the senior leadership team, to set broad company policy and then working with the people who actually have to execute that policy on the choices they're making day-to-day and -day either supporting that policy or choosing to perhaps deviate from it because of you know, facts and circumstances on that day and then helping advise them both from a, what are the legal implications for that, what are the reputational implications, what are the implications upstream even within the, the organization. So that, sort of you mentioned reputational there and that leads to my next question, which is I was sort of curious for a retail-focused brand like, um, a consumer-focused brand like Reebok, where obviously you want to sell shoes, you want people to be excited about that brand identity, how much is of ESG policy is, I'm just sort of curious about the motivations for a company's ESG policy. So how much of it is, oh, we need to do this for marketing? How much of it is, um, we need to do this to forestall what we fear might be a more aggressive government regulation? So we're gonna have an internal climate policy so to hopefully avoid a top-down government in, uh, mandated climate policy. How, so what are the different motivations? And then related to that, does that matter? In other words, do we, does it matter that a corporation is truly altruistic or does that just like, that's, who cares about that? It's just about finding a way to get a corporation to do the right thing and making it match up at the bottom line. Yeah, so I think it, that the, the motivations vary across all the corporations, and then even across the issues within the corporation, right? So, so Reebok, I like to think, has long time had a reputation as being kind of in the forefront, at least within our industry. So footwear and apparel, of, of kind of having a more progressive attitude about things than some of our competitors. Reebok back in the 1990s was invited to be um, a leading sponsor of Amnesty International's Human Rights Now concert series. And they made a decision, I think mostly from a brand reputation, nothing really altruistic, but hey, this is in a way to elevate the brand and sort of send a message to consumers to, to, to take that role, to support the concert. But as a result of that relationship, the then owner and the founder of the brand um, just was really moved by what he saw to take a stand for the brand and, and really put um, supply chain supply chain transparency and standards kind of at the forefront of, of our brand identity. So um, there was a real effort to create workplace standards and hold all the factories to these that you know you would not, there could be no unpaid uh, overtime, no child labor, no forced labor, working conditions had to be safe and clean. We created a something called the Fair Factories Clearinghouse which was uh, a database basically that we shared with our competitors to allow there to be transparency among competitors as to which factories were meeting standards and which weren't. Um, and that, that over time, so I don't think there's anything necessarily altruistic about that. It was, it was one man, the owner really feeling like this was an important thing to do. Over time, that attitude really permeated what, how Reebok saw itself as a brand and therefore how all the employees saw themselves, right? It became a very important part of being someone at Reebok, working at Reebok. This was, this was important to us as a brand and it became important to our employees as, as people. Um, and so I think, you know, in that regard, there was maybe something altruistic about it. It got reinforced by the reputational benefit, right? I mean, Reebok really 
for a while had this great reputation. You know, it was quality product, it was good product, but it was also a, a, a company that you could feel good buying from because you felt like, hey, they, they're, they're trying to do right. And I think that sort of became this feedback loop, this virtuous circle where, um, you know, Reebok did this, you know, for whatever reason, it worked, it reinforced itself through reputation, it reinforced itself through the way employees internalized it, and it became a very important part of what we did. I think um, the idea of forestalling government uh, regulation, I, I think that is a motivation for some corporations sometimes. I'm certain it has been at various times for Adidas. I don't think it's really a calculation at Reebok recently, in part because we aren't big enough. Like we, we aren't a big enough slice of our industry to feel like anything we do is necessarily going to forestall what the government does. Right? It's more important when Nike, Nike is 10 times the size of Reebok. Adidas is eight times the size of Reebok. Those are the companies where they might be more interested in forestalling government regulation just because they, they can. Um, we might, as an industry, I think, you know, there are, there are industry associations where I think there's definitely maybe some push in the hopes that collectively we can forestall it. But when the decisions are made at the individual corporate level, I really think it's the, the big ones who that's a bigger factor in, in sort of their, their decision making. And then whether or not it matters, I don't know that it does. I think if we get to the right spot in the end and we move things forward, how we got there, why we got there, a little irrelevant. I might argue that, you know, if, if, if we're allowing the, the, the motivation that gets you there slower to control, then maybe that's not so good and we should care. But um, I think it's also the rare corporation that you could ever believe is acting altruistically about anything. Not, not because they're evil, not, right? They're, they're human beings. Human beings don't often act altruistically on their own, right? There's, there's a lot of, there's, there's feedback. You feel good when you do it. For corporations, there's, there's an element of that as well. And I think, you know, I was saying this to Kale either earlier, you know, until you work for one, you have that idea that this corporation is this monolithic actor that just acts as a corporation. But the reality is, is that it's, it's people, right? It's, it's people at every level of it who are acting for all manner of reasons um, and for all sorts of motivations. And, and I think, you know, I, I, like, I, like I said, at Reebok, it, it, we've benefited from the fact that, that there was this internalized idea that Reebok needs to do better. And that's carried through its, its existence, um, even with this most recent sale. So just to pick up on that, and I mentioned this to the clinic, so apologies for clinic students who are hearing this again, but I, I think it's, I want to spend a little bit of time on this idea that the people inside the corporations, how that influences corporate culture. So uh, the example that I've used in the clinic is uh, grassroots organizers. It's sort of a famous story now who, um, or at least it's famous to my students. <laughs> um, at who were working to convince Starkist Tuna to adopt dolphin-safe policy. And what the grassroots organizers decided to do was first figure out who were the leadership executives at Starkist that might make this decision, then figure out where their children go to school, and then petition those school districts to say, hey, we'd like to just to do a presentation on dolphins and marine life and just to educate the kids. Like, and they didn't even mention tuna. They just were gonna talk about how wonderful dolphins were to the kids of these executives in their schools. With the idea that ultimately that the executives are really people who don't want to have to tell their kid who says, Daddy, are you guys nice to dolphins? Wants to say, yes, we are. And so I'm just sort of curious if you can say a little bit more like that. 
inherent in that strategy is an understanding that corporations are not a monolith, that they are individual people. And so how, how does that build a corporate culture along the lines of ESG policies one way or the other? Yeah, and I, I, I hesitate to say that this can be, you know, this could be a strategy everywhere because there's something organic about it. But, but fundamentally, my experience with the, the leadership at Reebok and with the employees at Reebok is that they, they care about things, right? And so, and, and decisions get made at every level of the organization every day. And, and to the extent that, that there's an opportunity for someone to make a choice between, you know, if they care about the environment, they care about some particular ESG principle, and they're faced with a choice, one of which is, you know, moving that forward and one of which isn't, and, and that becomes a factor in their decision. And, and over time, all those small decisions get made in favor of the ESG strategy, right? In favor of the principle that's been adopted. Sometimes, I think, decisions might get made in opposition to what the corporation might other, you know, there are probably corporations that do not have a strong ESG, um, you know, statement or principle or whatever, but there might be decisions made in various levels of the organization by people who have, have a decision-making opportunity and, and authority and do so, you know, coming at it from their own perspective. Now, obviously, this all gets colored by the fact that ultimately everyone's there because they're getting paid. This is their job, right? Fundamentally, they want to keep their job. They want the corporation to do well because they want to, again, keep their job, maybe get their bonus, right? So you, it's not ever done in a vacuum. But I think over time, as, as, as these statements get made broadly by the corporation and then reinforced by management and then reinforced by middle management, it starts coming, get, it gets reinforced from the ground up as well as people start to really think, okay, this is something that matters to my employer. I'm going to, and it matters to me. And so therefore I wanna, I wanna do what I can to help this, right? And so it's, a, it, it's not just environmental ESG, it, it's something when you start talking about DE&I, the, you know, the top-down lessons it only matters in the end when the people at the bottom, right, the people making those individual hiring choices or whatever, they've internalized it, they care about it, and they start carrying it forward. Then that's when you get the real change and the real support. And I think it's true, you know, fundamentally, it's, it's true across all of the ESG stuff. Obviously, you know, you're going to move a lot faster if it's, if it's a policy at the top, right? It's, it's the incremental decisions that get made at the bottom when there's no real support all the way up eventually will peter out. But I think fundamentally, if you look at corporations as the people who are there and you win the hearts and minds of the people who are there, that's where you make the real progress. So I want to stay on this, this topic of sort of the people inside and sort of how their, what their motivations are. And um, this is outside of Reebok, but it's an Adidas question. So, and you know Adidas pretty well. Um, that company got a lot of criticism for how slowly it responded to sort of one offensive or controversial statement after another or action after another from Kanye, who was a sponsored athlete that had the whole Yeezy line. Um, and Adidas was very slow to eventually cut ties. Um, do you have any insight on why they might have been slow to respond? sort of at knowing Adidas, um, or, or just what was what their thinking was inside as that controversy was unfolding. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, this is one man's perspective on this, right? So I'm not speaking for Adidas, and I'm not speaking for Reebok in this. But, but, you know, nakedly, 
a big part of the delay was the fact that, that the Yeezy line was a huge part of Adidas's business, right? And so you could certainly attribute the fact that they were going to lose money, 100%. That was slowing the roll on that. But another factor, which I don't think anyone really talked about, was that when they cut ties with, with Kanye and stopped the Yeezy line, they had to lay off more than 3,000 people, right? There were actual individual people. There were friends and colleagues of the decision makers who knew you know, and that was just to begin with. Like ultimately, I think they probably lost more than 10,000 positions as a result of the Yeezy line going away, right? So yeah, billions of dollars in profit, no doubt, that slowed them down. But there were definitely, I, you know, I remember talking to people on that, like knowing, right, they were gonna shut down entire office buildings full of people, right? So there was, there were, and these were not, these were not wealthy executives, right? These were people who were nine to five, you know, making a decent living, but not, you know, they, these were not people who were going to have a very comfortable landing when they lost lost their job, and so there was there was some real concern that maybe that was a rationalization for some people, but it was definitely a factor in trying to figure out a, a way: is there a way we can save this, not just because of the profit, right, but because of the jobs that were involved? And and certainly, I do not doubt that there were executives who didn't give a damn about the jobs who were they were only looking at the the um, the bottom line, but there was there was enough there were enough people involved who cared about the people who were going to be impacted who were trying very desperately to figure out a softer landing for everything. Um, I have another question about um, sort of now going back to let's say um, employee whether it's fair wages for folks who work in the factories or um, climate emissions from a factory. Um, you know, you can have a strong, let's say Reebok has a strong ESG policy. How do you sort of, especially as a general counsel, how do you supervise that? How do you oversee that if your factories are strewn across, you know, especially for a global brand, you've, your operations are all over the planet. How do you know what your, your contractors, your suppliers are doing? How do you enforce an ESG policy all the way down the line? Yeah, so there are a number of ways to do it under Adidas, we did it with employees. There were roughly a thousand people kind of supporting the supply chain element of, of the ESG program. So they, they would do spot visits to the factories. Um, there were, we would often have what we called uh, factory liaison offices. So Adidas employees actually on the ground in the factories all the time with who we told our manufacturers, they have free reign. Like you can't keep them out of any part of the factory. They've, you've got to let them go wherever they want to go. So there was just, there were eyes on the ground. Um, when, when Reebok first began to really focus on its supply chain integrity, there were not a lot of third parties that you could go to for this. There wasn't really an industry around it. Um, and so it, Reebok built its own internal structure initially, and then that structure got taken over by Adidas when they bought Reebok. Um, now that Reebok has been removed from the Adidas family and we're working for, we're now owned by a privately held company with not quite the same level of resources, some cynics might say commitment, but we'll say resources, um, we've now, we now in, uh, contract with third party audit firms, right? So we, they're aware of what our standards are. We pay them to make the surprise visits. Um, and then, and, and so that's sort of the, and, and as, and my role is just to make sure that, that we're, you know, I help identify these parties, negotiate the, the, the contracts with them, and then just sort of make sure that we're holding them to the deliverables that, that are in those agreements. Another way we do it, much more informal, 
is that um, we do send product developers and sourcing team members overseas to our factories on a regular basis, not for inspection purposes, but for um, development purposes. So trying to figure out the best way to actually manufacture the shoe. So they're in the factories fairly regularly. They're very experienced. Well, not all of them, but many of them are very experienced footwear folks who are able to very quickly spot something that, that's a little hinky. So, um, but yeah, and, and, and it runs, and, and in our industry, it runs the gamut, right? So from Nike and, and Adidas have amazing internal auditing and, and monitoring um, programs and then as you work your way down the size of the footwear and apparel companies it becomes much they become much more dependent on third-party auditors and inspectors and yeah and I think you mentioned um, was it like a thousand employees at Adidas or in that neighborhood yes, yep, yep. just working on ESG from a from a su supply chain point of view wow yeah. and then there were probably there were others focused on different aspects of the of the ESG um, program at Adidas it was so obviously that costs a ton of money, um, and it's a lot of money whether it's you're a publicly traded company or a privately held company. Um, now that we're seeing a rollout of a lot of anti-ESG policies, especially in U.S. politics, states that have adopted laws against ESG policy, um, both, I guess, either from a, a publicly traded company's perspective or a privately held company's perspective, how how do you navigate that? You still have your know, your your culture, your founder's culture, going back to his roots with this Amnesty International event, very progressive roots and very progressive corporate culture, and now you've got this pushback. H how do you navigate that political environment? Like, what's the strategy? I'm not entirely certain, honestly. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it's it's interesting. Um, It'll be interesting to see, right? Because the, the leadership team at Reebok is very committed to this. And I don't think they're going to be easily swayed from, from the path unless and until there's an actual, you know, prohibition on it. But I do think in an organization where maybe the commitment isn't as longstanding or hasn't become as, as sort of adapted and adopted from, from top to bottom, it'll be very easy to, to get pushed off an ESG thing, right? It, it's, it is expensive, and it's an investment in time and resources and money, and it's, and it's one of those things, you know, the bottom line, we, we have a, a colleague who often looks at things and says, well, is this going to sell any more shoes, right? That's the only, is this worth doing? Are we going to sell more shoes as a result of it? And oftentimes with an ESG um, project or policy, it's not clear, right? It's not clear that it's actually going to help your bottom line. There's some reputational help there's there's you know this kind of anecdotal idea that maybe people are more likely to buy a green product than a not green product but how big a premium are they willing to pay and all that sort of thing so you know it it it's easy i think it can be easy if it's not firmly established to knock an ESG program off its foundation with with you know blowback or or you know anti um, you know from anti activists who are kind of pushing against it um, I think the strategy is really you've just got to you've got to feel confident that the policy you've adopted is 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 you know is the right policy for your brand. It might not necessarily be the right policy. Like if you were doing it in a vacuum and saying, "Is this the best way to protect the environment?" It may not be. But it's like, okay, what are we able and willing to do 
from a brand perspective and and is that something we believe in and if we do then you've just got to weather the the storm to some extent um you know i look at i think adidas is not going to be easily scared by any of this stuff that you know you kind of query just how much of the anti-esg thing can actually what can you really do it's you know if, if 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 you've got free speech as a corporation and campaign finance, why don't you have free speech as a corporation and doing something like this, right? So, I you know I think there'll be some some of the more you know I, I can imagine Patagonia going to the mat, right, to protect its its ESG ethos with whatever laws come up. A lot of companies won't; they'll just wait and, and see what happens. But though, as you were saying <laughs> during our um, our class visit earlier. If you're a company that has a significant EU presence and EU has a much more progressive policy, then you know I'm, I'm sorry, XYZ state that's adopted this anti-ESG policy, I'm selling 60% of our retail business is not you know in the United States at all, much less in your state. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, I think that's the other thing too is that the, all the calculus gets different when you start crossing borders, right? And then it, and then it's it's not only what markets you're in, but how big is is that, you know, what percentage of your business is in that market? And you know, and there are there are instances where people withdrawn from markets because of the regulation. If it's you know, if it if it the cost of doing business goes up enough and it's not a big enough part of what you do, you may you may back off. But certainly from a a global consumer brand like like Reebok and Adidas and all the you know, name a footwear company, they rely so heavily on the EU as part of their market that they're we're getting driven a lot by what the EU does. So I, I'm going to ask one more question. I've got a whole binder of questions. I'm like, I am, again, like Mitt Romney today. I've got a lot of <laughs> Mitt Romney. The binder full of questions. <laughs> questions. Um, but before I get to my next, um, I'll ask one more, and then I'll see who in the room has questions. Um, you mentioned about sort of the green premium and this question about how much folks are willing to pay. I'm curious, um, do you think it matters for those of us who are consumers? Does voting with our dollars saying like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm excited that Reebok has, a, you know, cares about Amnesty International or that Reebok has the box program, which is focused on kids' health and that matters to me or a company doesn't have it. Does voting with our dollars actually make a difference? I think it does. I mean, I think going back to what happened at Reebok when we first got involved with the human rights, the Reebok Human Rights Awards, and the the feedback that came from consumers around that helped reinforce it and and have the company internalize it. Right? It it, it helped establish it as a real um, core principle of how Reebok operated. And so I think that's that's it's definitely it it definitely does help. I don't know. I can't put a percentage on it, and certainly. You know, the feedback loop is not, you know, it, it, it's a little imperfect, and so it's sometimes hard to know exactly why things are selling. But I, I do think voting with your, well, both, right? Voting with what your purchase is, and then all these brands are very sensitive to social media, right? Like they really, they really do pay attention to that, and to the extent that that being a bad actor results in a lot of bad social media feedback. The executives hear that, and similarly, positive stuff the, it, it it gets it gets heard. So I do think it's you know I think consumers do have a great deal of influence on how brands behave. So I'll, I'll restate the question. So as 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 Reebok went from public to private, 
how did that change their sort of your ESG policy or ESG disclosures? You know, Adidas has a ton of resources poured at it, new ownership, who knows, maybe not so much. So how did your ESG policy change or what were the pressures to change your ESG policies after that sale? Yeah, it absolutely changed. Um, certainly the disclosure aspect of it, you know, Adidas issues an annual report. Reebok doesn't have to now, right? Um, Adidas was a member of a whole slew of, of organizations that sort of required reporting. Reebok is because we moved out. They were not our memberships. We're now not a member anymore. The, the other sort of factor here is that the way the business is being done now, it's it's very divided between markets. It's sort of there's a standalone Europe, a standalone China. So there's it, we're not as collective an organization as we were, were before. So 100% big drop off in, in disclosures and reporting, big drop off in, in resources behind ESG. No change as far as I can tell about the commitment of the people in the building towards what we're trying to do, and honestly, some frustration about the fact that we don't have, we don't, we're not with Adidas anymore, right? Just learning to navigate a new way of doing business where um, we are privately held, where we're now a member of a group that has multiple brands with very varying reputations in this space. Um, and so just, I think it's gonna take us several years to sort of find our feet again and know really what the, how Reebok can drive its own messaging and, and stuff in this, in this new environment. But there's definitely a commitment at Reebok to, to find a way to do it. That's a great question. Um, other folks, I'll go over another one unless there's a hand that jumps up. Right back there. Oh, yes. So just restate that, uh, experience either while in law school or in private practice after law school that prepared you for the role at General Counsel at Reebok today. Yeah, funnily enough, I think the fact that I didn't have a plan when I got here prepared me really well for being a General Counsel. Right? I, I, I took whatever course seemed interesting to me while I was here, like I wasn't on a path to do anything. And so I had a varied you know, course path and then that first job I had where I just did anything and everything, I got very comfortable speaking knowledgeably about things I wasn't very knowledgeable about, right? Like it, it um, you know, or, or doing the very desperate research before I had to go into the meeting. Um, and, and then, so that, that, that very broad experience was incredibly helpful. Um, and then the next step when I was representing um, venture capital companies, we were the only lawyers they dealt with. They didn't have in-house counsel. So, and, and for some of them, I developed a real good rapport with the, the, the founders or whatnot, and they would just ask questions in general. And so I got very used to having conversations with business people that weren't necessarily entirely legal, right? And I think one thing that you all share as, as law students and you will share as lawyers is you, you're going to think about things differently than business people do, right? You're going to think about things very logically. You're going to you're going to be used to sort of trying to anticipate the 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 arguments against or the questions that might come up, right? And so I think you'll find yourself in a sitting in a room with business people, talking about something that, has a, that there's there's no legal aspect to it, right? There, there's not some regulation you're worried about, but you're going to synthesize. You're going to be able to synthesize what everybody else is saying around the table and ask the questions that no one else thinks to ask, or or exp or kind of summarize things in a way no one else in that room can summarize. And so I think, you know, that 
in a way, b- moving in-house and being a business attorney, it's not so much the, the substantive legal training. It's the skill, right? It's the ability that, that you probably had when you got here, but it's just getting refined and, re- and, and, and honed. That, I think, is, is, is the underrated aspect of what a, a general counsel or in-house counsel of any sort brings to a, uh, a corporation is this, this perspective that no one else in the building really has or can articulate. And so I think, you know, if you think you want to go in-house, honestly, then try everything, right? Like, seriously, like, the broader you are, it's, it's, a, it's a terrible path if you want to make partners somewhere. Like, don't, don't you like find a, an expertise and, and then you'll make partner. But if you think you want to go in-house, it's great to be a generalist. I, I really, it has been, it has made my career in-house so much more interesting than it would have been had I gone to a, a bigger legal department where I was the leasing attorney because that I was a real estate attorney and I now I'm just going to do all your leases and yeah okay if, if you and I apologize if that's the kind of thing you want to do the more power to you I, I would have poked my eyes out by now um, so I just think you know to the extent that you think you want to be in-house being a generalist is a great way to do it and I also say my other bit of unsolicited advice um, do not go in-house directly out of law school that's just a, a bad idea. You, you should go to a firm and let them train you um, and, and get those skills and then go in-house and, you'll, it, and it's, it's a much better path. I do know some people went in-house straight out of school and I just think they're, they're lesser lawyers as a result of it. Nice people, but lesser lawyers. <laughs> uh, yeah, right here. I'll ask that again, sorry. So, so following up on, I guess, any lessons learned from watching Adidas suffer through or, or flounder through sort of the whole Yeezy disaster. Um, and th- what are those lessons learned as you move towards signing another athlete, uh, star with Justin Fields? Yeah, so I don't know that there are actually lessons learned from, from the Kanye thing because everyone already knew. The, the Kanye agreement had all the provisions it needed to terminate the deal. The, the, the issue there was that Adidas just came, became way too dependent on a one person, right? So, and not just from a from a income standpoint, but there was you know there was a whole division of individuals who were employed to support the Yeezy brand, and because that brand was so tied to one individual, he like it, it was all on him, right? So, I, you know, in some respects, I guess the lesson would be don't put all your eggs in a crazy person's basket, um, but. But it's, it's also hard, like that wasn't what Adidas set out to do, right? Adidas signed Kanye because he was influential and, and whatnot, and they thought, great, we'll, we'll sell some more shoes. But it, it took off, right? It just, it was, it was amazing. And for a while, it was fantastic. And so, you know, the, they were blinded by their own success and put more and more behind this. And, and, you know, maybe the lesson learned was the first time he went a little nuts, so they should have just stopped. But he came back to, to reality, and they doubled down because the sales were good, right? So, but with like what we've done for a while or try to do, and, and this is this is a tough balance because, you know, with a, with an athlete like Justin Fields, it's it's you can do the diligence and sort of see, you know, what's his character, what are the, who are the people around him, um, you know, just what is what. And you feel a little more confident about it because his, his image is relatively wholesome, and that's important to him. When you do something with a rapper who's got an edgy, you know, sort of public persona to begin with, how do you 
protect against that persona that you're consciously choosing to associate your brand with to come back and bite you, but make that the rapper's fault, right? I, I remember we were um, years ago doing a deal with Conor McGregor, right? So always a controversial figure. Um, and we knew that, right? We knew that, but we, and we pushed really hard to put language in his contract that was going to allow us to get out if he acted up. I remember having a conversation with his agent saying, you're signing him because he acts up. Like, he's important to you because he acts up. You want him to be who he is because that's why he has this, this influence. And so we had to make a choice. Like, all right, that's fair, right? We, they're not, they don't want to have Connor have to behave differently just because he's now a Reebok athlete. And so we had to, so there was, there was some absurdly specific language in this agreement about certain things that if he did, we got to get out, but it was, it was embarrassingly specific. Um, so, so anyway, so I, I, think, I think brands have always known, right? It's just that this, they re, it just really got too in with him. And that's the, just the, the cautionary tale is be careful how, how reliant you become on one individual. I'm going to ask one follow-up on that, which is, I'm in to sort of bring this sort of discussion of endorsed uh, celebrities back to the ESG world. So you have been involved, I know, in in deals involving Shaquille O'Neal and Allen Iverson. And do you have any stories you can share or insights from sort of working with Shaq or um, Allen Iverson or others about how they have have influenced your ESG policies? In other words, that they say. My brand is is whatever it is is you know cares about environmental issues, social issues, um, fair trade issues, and so therefore before you I sign this endorsement deal, I want to make sure that Reebok is meets my standard. No, de definitely. There's there's a growing sense among the athletes that that this sort of thing is important to them as well. Um, it it it's it's this. It, it reflects itself more often in the athletes will ask that in addition to paying them something that Reebok make a donation to a cause dear near and dear to their heart. It doesn't tend to be as overarching as as an ESG policy overall, and they're not necessarily um, focused on on a broader sense of this. Although they are more often now, um, traditionally the the agreements always included sort of um, reputational outs for us, right? So if the athlete engaged in some activity that brought us into disrepute, we could get out. We're starting to get a lot more pushback or, or athletes wanting some mutual assurances, right? That, that if, and, it, and, it, and I think it is leaning a little more towards the, the ESG stuff because that's the more reputational place where we can get in trouble, right? And so I think there is, you're starting to see more of that. Um, and, and maybe in some ways it's it's kind of like trying to to sway a consumer at the the cash register to pick your shoe over somebody else's because you have this good reputation. It's it's the same thing getting in front of an athlete, right? They 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 want to associate themselves with brands with good reputations as a general rule. And so in order to be competitive in the market for someone like Justin Fields. You need a brand that he actually wants to associate himself with. So there is there is definitely some pressure there. I don't know if it's as explicit as as your question maybe was looking for, but it's definitely it's another factor that play. And and it actually 
it's interesting, like the, the supply chain stuff that Reebok was really pioneering, it's, it's come full circle now. You know, anytime we partner with another IP holder, be it someone like Universal Studios or Warner Brothers or the leagues when we were doing NFL and NBA, they all now have requirements, right? That we are only going to associate ourselves with outfitters, with manufacturers of product who have manufacturing standards that, that protect um, the workers in the factories. And so it's, you know, and, and so that, I think in many ways the, I mean, there, there are obviously exceptions to these, these um, supply chain, um, of, uh, the supply chain quality stuff. But, but it, it sort of became, again, the virtuous circle, right? The consumers cared about it. We as the middleman cared about it. The people licensing us, their IP cared about it. And it became something that we just had to do to do business. That's great. Uh, yeah, Jay. So that's a great question. So I'll just, um, I'll try to reiterate Professor Butler's question just for the recording. Um, but the gist of it is, it's it's one thing to make a voluntary commitment uh, on along the line of ESG issues. Um, another thing to have a mandatory commitment, which seems to be harder to secure. So ultimately then, what is, if, if you've made a commitment, whether we want to call it voluntary or, or um, or, or binding, what is the enforcement mechanism for, let's say, factory workers in Bangladesh if they feel like, hey, this is actually not a fair trade factory? What, what is the enforcement mechanism? Is that a fair restatement? Excellent. Yeah, I, I <coughs> from our perspective in some ways, the enforcement mechanism, mechanism, which is not great for the factory workers, is that we remove, we stop using that factory, right? So, it, it doesn't really help the workers all that much because now there's no one using the, f the factory. Um, there has there have been moments in my career. I know when we were when Adidas um, had a factory in Malaysia where we they'd actually pulled out months before, and the factory ended up going bankrupt and the workers were unpaid and they were petitioning the I think it was in Malaysia or Indonesia one of the two they were petitioning the government for redress. And then the government was looking to the brands that had been in in that factory to fund uh, basically unemployment and 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 back wages for these um, for the for the the factory workers. And it was it was a very complicated. It, it was you know from Adidas's perspective, there was there was some resentment to the fact that we hadn't been the only one in the factory. We'd been out. We'd pulled out like six months earlier. Um, it was a not insignificant amount of money. There was some real resistance to paying. There was sort of pointing fingers between the other brands. What then ended up happening is, and, and th this kind of the, the, the activism part of it, um, at the time, both UCLA and the University of Wisconsin were Adidas universities. Their, their, their teams wore Adidas uniforms. The students at those factories started protesting and demanding that the university move away from Adidas as a sponsor because of what was happening in in this factory. And that, and I think there were some other Nike University students, and, and ultimately that's what got the brands at the table together, and they figured out a way to fund, um, you know, admit, accepted responsibility for this uh, without, you know, without, like, allowing themselves to be responsible. They were, they, they, you know, they, they disclaimed any liability and yet said, 
here, here's what we'll do, and they made everyone whole. It's a very difficult, you know, it's a very complicated interaction. You know, you're talking about, you know, factories in, in, in countries that don't necessarily have uh, the best court systems or, or the governments themselves are a little suspect in terms of their integrity. Um, you have a lot of NGOs who monitor this, and, and ultimately I think the remedy becomes the, the reputational harm to the brands if they don't step up and make it right. That's, I think, how the system currently works, um, and, and that's how it worked in that instance. But I don't have a good, a good solution, right? It's, it's, it's hard for, for Reebok to financially take responsibility for every aspect of these operations. Part of the reason why we have third-party factories is because we can't really afford to have our own factories, right? So because we, we don't have, we don't produce enough to hold a whole, take a whole factory's production qu um, quantity. So we, we get third-party factories. Um, but there is a recognition, like there's, there's a real feeling that we have an obligation there, which is why we do these workplace standards, why we um, inspect, and, and why we will only do business with a factory that meets our standards. But yeah, the remedy, unfortunately, doesn't necessarily help the workers in the end. Um, did you have a follow-up or? I have a follow-up on it to start with. Well, insuring for something like a factory's bankruptcy isn't an easy policy to to get, right? I mean, it's it's it, it could be very expensive to insure something like that. Um, I mean, honestly, I, I I don't know that we've ever really sat down and thought it through, but but yeah, I, I guess we could, but I think that's just an additional cost, and 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 it doesn't happen all that often, right? I mean, at least from our perspective in our supply chain. It isn't something that we've regularly dealt with. Um, and quite honestly, when we, I mean, I, I suppose the w one thing is when we pull out because the, w the working conditions aren't, aren't good, I don't know how we'd sure against someone not having good working conditions. Certainly, maybe the absolute failure and failure to pay, but if we're leaving because, you know, they're, they're not paying overtime or they don't have enough fire exits or they don't have enough fire extinguishers, you know, I don't know what the what the remedy can really be there from us to them, other than to say well, we won't do business with you, and then I don't know what our insurance could cover in terms of making, you know, adding another door and a fire extinguisher. So you're absolutely right. I think for for the financial failure of a factory because we pull out, we probably could insure for that. But but the bigger issue, right, that what we're trying to do is improve the working standards. And I think the only way we can really do that, the only remedy we really have available is, well, I mean, we have the carrot and the stick, right? The carrot is we'll do business with you. We'll put more, if you're a good factory, we'll, we'll do more business with you. If you're a bad factory, we won't do business with you. Right. So. Yeah, so, so it's not, so, so the hopefully what happens is, is the threat of you all withdrawing from the factory leads the ownership, the third party owner, to actually implement the change that they've been resisting. Exactly. That would be the. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, and, and Reebok, we, we don't have as much influence as we used to. We are a much smaller brand, right? The, but thankfully, right, Nike and Adidas, which are massive and have, you know, they, they take up the production capacity of factory complexes. They have similar standards, right? And so there's, 
it's it's and, and factories get reputations, right? There are desirable factories. There are factories that that we as brands are desperately trying to get into, right? Trying to convince them to add production lines because we know that we can we we are certain that they will meet all of our standards and we will get quality products. And that's really, you know, it, we're and we're willing to pay a little bit more to have a factory like that. Not always, but sometimes. Well, I, I want to ask another question, and then we'll go. I'm going to jump in on this point. We've got about seven minutes to go for folks who are looking about their next uh, class to get to. Um, and it's, we had a speaker a couple of years ago, uh, Avi Garbo, who was the um, was an environmental attorney in-house at Patagonia. And before going to Patagonia, he had been at EPA doing climate work. And he said he felt more fulfilled at Patagonia in part because they could sustain progress. That with government, it was you know two steps forward, but then the next administration might roll back whatever they had just done. So it felt like they were just you know it was harder to sustain forward progress. Do you think that that sense is sort of unique to a company like Patagonia that has this mission that very much overlies with an ESG policy, or is that writ large true that you can sort of sustain progress in the private environmental government space in a way that you can't in traditional public governance? I think it's it's true in general, but I think it probably, I don't want to say it only matters, but it, it's more important to some a brand like Patagonia, right? Because like, that's, that's who they are, right? So I think like we, we want to do better, but it's not what we're trying. You know, sometimes like, like our, our goal isn't to improve the environment. Our goal is to make quality product in in a in a way that is, you know, is is decent to the environment. Um, but I do think it's true. I think that you know, in, unless and until the government tells us we can't be doing something, we can keep doing it. So certainly, um, you know, us choosing to to focus on you know using less water in the dying process, right? Like that's that's progress we will make and we will maintain because we will start. That's how we will make our apparel from here on out, right? Now I suppose it's conceivable we could find that it's way too expensive and we're losing market share and we need to start going back to a cheaper dye process. But but fundamentally, I think it is easier to maintain to 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 not take the two steps back in the private sector. Okay, so that's a good question. Do does does a push to sort of bring manufacturing back to the United States is that part of uh, an ESG policy uh, or something that you've seen either at Reebok or elsewhere? It it is not really part of the policy. It's been explored at times entirely from um, well. So Adidas was trying to figure out a way to do. They had something called speed factories, and it was automated. They were basically 3D printing footwear, um, and they thought that they could bring that to the United States, um, mostly just for the idea that you would cut down on shipping costs, right? And 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 the the restrictions around that. Honestly, it's not something that um, that Reebok has as part of its its policy. There's really only one footwear company that even makes it in any way part of who they are. New Balance has some. Uh, U.S.-based manufacturing, and it's kind of a, it plays up in sort of their brand identity. Um, there's certainly no resistance to it, but as a general rule, I think everyone just sort of accepts that that footwear and apparel manufacturing can't be done in the United States in a cost-effective way if 
without making everything so much more expensive for consumers in the end. So we've got about time for maybe two more questions from the group. Yeah. So, so great question. Um, uh, are the so the risks that I guess it's market share risks and everything from uh, who who might be yeah. Um, do the risks that we've discussed in the ESG space sort of keep you up at night? And if not, what are the things that keeps the general counsel at Reebok up at night? Um, so the ESG stuff in general doesn't keep me up at night because I feel like we're we've got a handle on it and we're we're trying very hard to, to get there and the and. The things that go wrong in our ESG space aren't necessarily like certainly something like Kanye, right? That's but that's that's a, a different animal. What I do sometimes worry about, um, we've gotten back into making children's product, and children's product is in very heavily regulated uh, in a lot of the same way spaces that ESG is concerned about, right? So chemicals in the manufacturing, chemicals on the product. Um, that's gotten me that that's kept me awake a few times lately because I just worry that we're not we're still sort of in a transitional phase and I don't feel like our processes are up. So that, that one has occasionally had me wake up in the middle of the night remembering I should talk to somebody about something. Um, yeah, there, I joke about this. I mean, we make, we make shoes, right? Like no one's going to die. So I, um, I don't tend to wake up in the middle of the night with sweaty palms and stuff, but there are the occasional moments where, you know, we've got a litigation going on and I'll suddenly realize something or, um, or, you know, just, that sometimes the there there are executives who get a little carried away with themselves and you've but as a general rule it, it it's it, for me like just the, the roles you know it's it it's an, it's time consuming and I have to think about it a lot but it thankfully it doesn't keep me up too late at night so um, uh, but I've only been in it a year so maybe check back in a year and I'll tell you if like there I've discovered the thing that I didn't even know I was supposed to be worried about so. Um, any anyone want the last question? Um, all right, I'm going to take the last. Oh wait, yes, go for it. No, you got it. Oh, well, that's a great question. So, how much of it is sort of looking forward, fireproofing for future problems versus firefighting, dealing with the crisis at the moment? I think it probably varies week to week, right? Generally, I think it's probably a 50-50 split, right? I mean, I, we try, I try to be strategic. I try to be tactical, and I try to be responsive. And so, you know, and maybe in the here and now, because we're moving off of Adidas, right, which is a German company, very process-driven, lots of policies, lots of people spending a whole lot of time fireproofing, right? So it was kind of getting done for us as a general rule. And so there was, I spent a lot more time either, you know, putting out fires or helping people at my business understand what the heck it was Adidas wanted us to do. Um, now we're setting up a whole lot of things. So by the very nature, it's a lot more forward looking because I'm trying to get us not back to where we were with Adidas. That was a little too much, but to somewhere where we have the, you know, the, the infrastructure that's going to allow us to just, just operate. Um, and, and, and then when, uh, you know, I'm spending a lot more time on privacy law lately because the states have gotten much more active in that. So trying to sort of anticipate where we're going to get there. 
Um, yeah, so it, it really it, it does it does it does vary. And then trying to sort of insinuate myself in some of the more long-term business thinking, in the hopes that I can steer them away from from making choices early on that are going to cause us problems later down the road. Again, in part because they don't think about things the way we were all you were all being trained and I was trained to think about things. Right. So it's it's a it's definitely in that regard. Well, I have about 26 more numbered questions, but we have no more time. But but actually, before we go, I yes. I apologize. I realized that in the course of my talking, I said crazy and nutso, and that was not right. So I apologize. That was that I shouldn't have used those terms. So I just want to say that I was trying to be funny, and uh, I shouldn't have used those terms. So I apologize for for having done so. Well, I, I put you on the spot. So uh, um, well, please join me in thanking Eric for returning to the law school and sharing his insights.